0: The following Dharma talk was given by Maureen Jisho Ford. Jisho is a senior student in the Mountains and Rivers Order and a retired social worker with the Ulster County Department of Mental Health. She began practicing at the monastery in 1985. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, please visit us online at ZMM.org. Thanks for listening. I love this view. (laughs) It's such a joy to be here. Um, Yeah, it's a joy to be here. So I have a question for you. Is this your last session? I used to ask myself that question many, many times many years ago, when I was terribly ill and not supposed to survive. And I would drag myself in here each month and I would ask myself, is this the last session I'm ever going to do? And that question hasn't come up for me in a long time, but it came up this session. It came up this session because I've missed a few sessions for minor health issues, but I am 80 years old, and Shugen Roshi loves to remind us that um, Buddha was on his last leg when he was 80 years old, so I I looked up in a natural chart what my life expectancy is. It's 79, so I'm not supposed to be here. They don't know, so keep it quiet. So I guess what I'm trying to say, and what I'm trying to point to is really what we're talking about this... This anga, which is the most serious question of all—life and death—and I'm hoping to just offer uh, some words that that might be helpful to the sangha. So, you know, in my experience, you know, how do we deal with death? And the answer to that question is not very well. Um, We deny it, which is a very mature, immature defense mechanism that we use, and. It's amazing to me how we just eradicate it from our existence, even though we've come through a COVID epidemic with people dying all around us and people dying in wars overseas, in Ukraine and Sudan and other places that can't even remember, but but it doesn't exist because it doesn't touch us. So I think it's very good once in a while to touch it, move closer to it, and see that it won't kill you. It actually is is a gift if you can just look at it. It's not so terrifying. Sometimes it is, but most of the, sometimes it's not. Um, so I was writing, you know, on 28A, and I noticed the signs for hospice. And I thought, well, wow, that's really a wonderful idea, but those signs aren't catching it. Those people look too healthy and too happy to be in hospice. And and I get why they use those signs, because if they put sick and dying people on it, it would frighten people away. So... Um, You don't see the sunken eyes, the gaunt cheeks, pallid skin. You don't see on those posters what what death is really like up close and personal. And I know because uh, for a while I worked at um, AIDS-related community services, ARCS, and that was at the beginning or the height of the AIDS epidemic. And I tell you, I was at a deathbed almost every other week. And it was sobering, and frightening, and inspiring. Um, so death is is very real, um, and it, it behooves us not to look at it to pretend it's not going to happen to us. You know, one of the things I look around the world, and I, I, I doing that, me only the other day. You know what? No old people live in Hollywood. Have you noticed that? I'm serious. I think I think. Um, now, this might, I don't know if you know Cher, I, I'm not so up on my social, um, you know, this might sound very ancient, but Cher looks younger than me, way younger than me, and I think she's older than me, and her mother, who recently died, I think, looked even younger than Cher. And then you have Jane Fonda, who's got to be at least, I don't know, 90? I'm not sure. But but, And I think to myself, how sad, how terrible, how awful. What a terrible price to pay, you know, to do your job, but, but and, and I'm not saying that the price is just that you have to look young, I'm saying that the price is um, that you have to deny that you're going to die, particularly women. You know, when men get older, they get, you know, suave and charming and handsome, and old women turn into hags, really. I'm thinking about growing a little pimple on my nose here, you know, it would really fit the, the hag image, Let's see if you all run from me. But anyway, getting back to, is this your last session? I mean that seriously, seriously. I promise you, so help me God, if there is one, I don't think this person will go. But at any anyway, rate, I will come back and haunt each one of you. Every session, after I'm gone, I will roam these halls and whisper in each one of your ears, is this your last session? I'm serious. Is this your last session? How do you know? don't tell me you're 40 and you're great shape or 20 and you got, you know, 60 years to go. You don't know. You don't know. You can't know. And it's wonderful that we don't know because it keeps us on edge. It keeps us growing. We become very lax if we knew when we were going to die or maybe we become crazy. I mean, I don't know what it would do to us if we knew when we were going to die. But um, so so I, I so that's one of the things I want to say. I mean it. I will haunt you in your beds if you don't ask yourself, and I'm going to ask you you to put a big sign in the beginning, on the doors to the Zendo, is this your last session? Is it? Is it? Because I I wonder when my last session will be, because I'm not as young as I used to be, and I'm not as, uh, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, I'm not dying yet as far as I know, but you never know. So... um, one of the things I wanted to say that is very helpful in, in dealing with, with death and getting closer to it is to plan for it. You know, I had this great plan. By the way, uh, I am gay, and I'm married to my wife Natalie of 43 years, and it's germane to what I'm going to say. So that's why I'm putting it out there. So I said to Natalie, you know, don't worry, when I die, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take my dead body, put it in the back of the car, drive it to the crematorium, get the ashes, take the ashes to the monastery, and they'll bury me. And I thought that was a pretty good idea until I had a conversation with, um, uh, let's see, I'm going to say her name wrong, I'm so sorry, Uh, Kudo's wife, Jo. You know, Joe is a m- mortician and she's done a lot of workshops on death and dying and preparing for death and dying. And she sent me at least three emails with phonetic spelling of her last name. And for some bizarre reason, so not me, not me, for some bizarre reason these emails have disappeared completely from my emails. So I c- couldn't find them. So but I think it's scary or scary, but it's anyway, it's it's kudos if I'm saying her name right, I hope, Kudo's wife. And I, Natalie and I met with her. And she disabused me of all my ideas about a cheap funeral, because I wanted to do it on the cheap, you know. So she said, you can't dump a body in, in, unless it's in a box. And I said, ah, but Costco has cardboard boxes. You, they do. They have cardboard uh, caskets. They also have wooden caskets. And some of these caskets you can use as a coffee table in your living room. Natalie said, no, 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 no. We were not having my casket in her living room. So, so Natalie, uh, the most wonderful wife in the whole world, She's watching. She critiques me. Um, so she has a woodworking shop in the basement, and she's making all kinds of wonderful things. I don't know what she makes some of the time, but they're great. She makes, like, planters and little tables. So I said to her, you know what? You could make me a coffin. And she, she, I'm not making... I don't know why. I thought it was a good idea. I'd help her, but she doesn't want to do that. And I guess I understand it. But this is all as a, as a prelude to... to getting closer to um, and being willing to look death in the eye. And so I'm strongly recommending, um, perhaps, this is an idea, I just want to throw it out it would be wonderful if we could have a a retreat weekend on dying and and death. I mean, we could write our obituaries, um, maybe maybe, um, I'm so sorry, Joe could come and Talk about the realities of death, it's pretty sobering, let me tell you, and um I also thought, oh, we could make urns for our ashes, and we could make coffins, but that's very presumptuous when uh, um, Hojin has been making pottery for years, and it's presumptuous of me to think that me or anybody could make a urn for their burial in a weekend. I guess that's not possible <laughs> but but maybe maybe the maybe we could think about how to make it more real. Maybe the monastery store could start selling uh, herbs, and then you could take it home, and you could put flowers in it, and then they'll put, you know, you in it someday. But at any rate, so those are some of the things I was thinking about, because, you know, I've lived a long time. It went like that, incredibly quick. I can't believe how quick it went, but, um, One of the things I've I've learned is that um, there isn't... I've learned a couple of things, actually. There is nothing, nothing in the entire world, nothing that is not practice. There's not a single thing I can do. Nothing that is not practice. And and number two, what I've learned is... um, That which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. I think a German said that. Sounds like something a German would say. I think, but um, but but that is absolutely true. Um, Let's see. So, one of the reasons that people are attracted to various religious paths is that they they all purport, on some level, to to put to rest the question of life and death. And I think, actually, if we didn't die, I wonder if man would have even had a need for religion. I mean, you think about the horrible things that happen to people, you know, where crops would be wiped out. And... Um, there'd be fires, and floods, and horrible things would happen, and life seemed very much on the edge, and you didn't really live much past um, middle age, so let's, let's sacrifice a couple of calves, or, or sheep, or virgins, always virgins. The men never got sacrificed. They always wondered about that. But anyway, so they, but sacrifice, whatever you're going to do to appease these powers, because you don't know what the hell is going on and what's going to happen to you. And how can I be safe? How can I be sure? How can I be secure? You really can't until you learn the secret, which is it's actually it's not a big secret. Um, Buddhism talks about it all ago, about it a lot. It's just, it's not just, letting go. When we cease to care about certain things, it loses its power over us. Uh, you know, now, Zen, and this is one of the things that attracted me to Zen, Zen is silent <clears throat> about an afterlife, yet yet it has the reputation for laying the question of life and death to to rest. But... When I got here, you know, I thought Dido was incredible. I just looked into his eyes, and I just knew this was a man of deep spiritual practice. But I would hound him with, uh, you know, I wanted to know more. I thought I could sit down with him and take a pen out and write down his answers. You know, because if I went to a Catholic priest and said to him, what happens when I die, he'd say, oh, yeah, you're going to go here, and if you're not good, you're going to go to hell. And, you know, they had all the answers. And I would get vague answers from him, and it wasn't very satisfying. And and I couldn't understand, initially, why, for a spiritual path that has that reputation, he wasn't up there telling us. Well, he was shouting at me, but I couldn't hear him. Um, And it's interesting to me, too, that two schools of Buddhism, which are so similar, which is Tibetan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism, have such different approaches to, to death. Um... So, uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, you've got the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, the Tibetan Book of the Death, and many others. And, but we don't have that clear path. Um, they tell you, I mean, they have the Bardo of Dying. And if you want to scare yourself, read the Bardo of Dying. And it describes in, in intimate detail how the body just shuts down. It's scary. And then they tell you, they know you're going to be in the Bardo 49 days. They tell you all the different stages that may or may not happen. And it's scary, that's all I can say. And don't look for these lights, look for those lights. And I'm writing it all down, it's like a roadmap to the Bardo. And I'm trying to do all these practices, they have wonderful practices. But after a while, I decided that that's a good practice for many people. For many people, that's a wonderful practice. But it's not for me. Because I was hanging on to it as like my ticket out of dying. Because when I heard rebirth, I go, Great, I'll never die. I'll just keep coming back, you know? Not that way. It's not that way. So and, and so you've got these two paths, right? One laid out clearly everything you could possibly need to know, and wonderful practices, and another path where Dido would say. This is my most vivid memory of him. Every session, he would say, die on your pillow. Die the great death, and you never have to die again. I didn't know what he was talking about, but I said, oh, I'll give it a try. I didn't know. It was very, very, very... It was a hard practice, because he was... He was I was asking questions from here, and he was trying to answer them from another place that I didn't even know existed. Um, so... I wanted to share, this was a preamble to my sharing with you, um, an encounter, a very personal and up-close encounter I had with death in in 1986. I came to this monastery in September of 1985, the first weekend, I think it was a, a training weekend, and the second weekend in 1986, I got a call at my office right after the week, holiday weekend, and my doctor told me to come to the hospital immediately, that I needed surgery, that I had a tumor in my colon, and when I got there I found out that the tumor was stage four. It had grown so large that it had grown, pushed out the, the wall of the colon, and to make it worse, if that wasn't bad enough. Before they operated on me to remove the colon tumor, the pre-op x-rays showed that I had in both my lungs six or seven small lesions. Another word for that is baby tumors. So they said to me, "Um, you'll have time to get your affairs in order, and um, we wish you good luck, but the chemotherapy we have hardly ever works against this, and... Um, So, that was incomprehensible. I was 44 years old. I had an 8-year-old daughter. Nellie and I had been together for 7 years. I was numb. I was terrified. I was anguished for my 8-year-old daughter because when I called her father, my ex-husband, to tell him that he had to prepare to take custody of our daughter. He said to me, well, you can bet Natalie and your family's is going to have a hell of a time ever seeing her again. And I said to myself, son of a bitch, I'll fix you. I'll live. Uh, so there was a, a, a motivator in a way, but it was, it was, it was devastating. It was just devastating. Um, and I don't want to say anything bad about him. Let me just say a word or two. He was a very, very wounded, wound, such a wounded man. Um, I had no business marrying him. I couldn't figure out or didn't want to know that I was gay. I I I knew I was, even though I didn't know the word for it when I was like four or five years old, really, very young. But I didn't know the word for it. And I knew it had to be wrong. I knew it had to be a sin that would send me to hell, even though nobody told me, because I looked around in this great world that we live in, and I saw no examples of women loving women or men loving men. So I concluded that whatever was going inside of me was wrong. And I did the biggest suppression I think anyone has ever done. I think when I first saw a therapist about it, she told me I was one of the most sexually repressed people she'd ever treated, really. I was shoved down because it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. It was a sin. And at that point in my life, sin meant, I don't know, separation from God on some level. That was at the heart of it. So, at any rate, um, um, oh, and prior to my diagnosis, six weeks almost to the day, my father had died from lung cancer. So, I had loads of questions for Dido. Um, Okay. So, I'm going to talk about. I guess, cancer practice. As I said before, there's nothing that's not practice. And I remember thinking when it happened to me, the first thought that came to my mind is, okay, how am I going to practice this? How am I going to practice this? And um, I also knew from my own experience that Our instinct is to turn from the thing that we fear. But we will always be running. If we run from the thing that we fear, we will always be running, we will always be being chased, and we will never be free. The only way to be free, the only way that I know from my experiences, is to turn toward the thing that fills you with terror. Turn toward it. You are strong enough to do it. Maybe not in the beginning. If in the beginning you can't turn toward it, then set the intention, the aspiration. I aspire to be able to turn toward my fear. I aspire. Because ultimately, what it comes down to is learning to hold the terror. Shugen Roshi likes to say, it's always workable, no matter what terrible thing is happening to us, no matter whether our marriage is falling apart, our lover is taken off, one of our kids have died, it's unimaginable as far as I'm concerned, Um, anything, it's always workable. So what does that mean? He's not saying there's a solution that you can apply to this problem that will fix it. What he really means is that there's something that you can do about it. It's never, there's never nothing that you can do. When your back is against the wall, when all of life is closing in, when there's absolutely no escape, when you've told your terminal or any other awful thing that you can think of, the only thing you can possibly do is change yourself. Do things differently. We, can, we, we can't control, we cannot control what happens to us. We, none of us know how long or short our lives will be. We have no control. But we have complete control over how we choose to live our life. So you could have two people dying, same circumstances, same life history, basically. And one person is distraught and upset and filled with fear or anger. And the other person at peace, serene. What's the difference? What's the difference? Where is the pain coming from? Where is the suffering coming from? Is it coming from the doctor who said you're gonna die? Did he cause the pain? Where is the pain coming from? You've heard before the expression, pain is unavoidable, but suffering is optional. That I know from my own experience. Absolutely, that is true. Pain is unavoidable. It's like, okay, so you got punched in the gut and that hurts physically. And what do you do with it? If you um, ruminate and plot and plan how to get back at that person who gave you that pain, you're making suffering. And maybe, let's say, the pain was not that you were punched, maybe someone you love dearly, a relative, is, is shot and killed in a, uh, a drive-by or something like that. And your whole life then becomes vengeance. You will not rest until the person who killed your, let's say, your spouse is put to death, and that can take years and years because of all the appeals and the court systems. And finally, one day, after all that waiting, you're going to get your revenge. And you even go to the execution, you see that person put to death, maybe in an electric chair, I don't know how they do it now. And you walk out, and do you think you feel relieved and happy? I will bet you a million dollars you don't feel anything like that. You feel empty because your whole life has been focused on getting back at that person. No matter what it takes, you swear you're going to get back. And you're left. You're left with bitterness, anger, empty life, nothing, nothing to live for. When vengeance is all it's about. So, I—that's I th- okay. Natalie told me not to say um, and not to touch my face, <laughs> because she said that's all I did last time. And so I'm—I'm I'm doing good, right, Natalie? I don't think I've said it yet. <laughs> um, okay. So, in—in uh, in terms of using my, my experience, to perhaps to offer it to you, um, in the hope that it will be of some help to you. Um, I, I want to read something. By the way, um, the the incident uh, with cancer, uh, I wrote about that for the Mountain Record. The Mountain Record is a journal that would come out quarterly, and the monastery no longer publishes it now. But if you want to know more about this very intimate journey, and I don't get any residual fees or anything like that, <laughs> if, you just, if you just type in Shikantaza, Shikantaza is for WIMPs, it'll come up, okay? So that's what I'm reading for, so what I'm reading from. So I'm going to give you a little background here. Um, so uh, after they told me it was totally hopeless and there was nothing they could give me, I went down to Sloan Kettering and there was a, a research program down there. Um, I didn't know if it would work, but I qualified for it, and the drug was something called platinol. And that's a heavy metal, and they were pumping me full of platinol, and the usual drug that they used for the colon cancer, but the platinol was so deadly that, that um, I had to have four or five more drugs so, they, if anyone's had cancer, you know that, they will usually put an port under your skin so that they can put any of the meds they're gonna give you, because you'll have no veins with all the meds they're giving you. They put it in here. And um, that medicine made me sicker than the cancer ever made me. Um, now again, I sometimes jokingly refer to it as the time of the great suffering, but before I started to write this talk, we had to talk about the talk because she's so helpful, so supportive, so loving. I'm so lucky. Um, and when we were talking about it, it wasn't the time of the great suffering anymore. It was all coming back. The feelings were very raw. And it was good to reconnect with those feelings because they were a gift. I'll say more about that later. Uh, so the setting for this one I'm going to read is, I had undergone all the uh, chemotherapy treatments. I couldn't do any more. This is interesting, I thought. I said to the doctor, how do you know how much to give me? He said, well, we figure out how much will kill you. And then we draw it back from that just a little bit. He was not kidding. So, so, oh, he was not kidding. So what happened was the, the, the drugs caused um, numbness in the uh, arms and hands and, and the legs and the feet. And that was the sign they were looking for, it was toxic, it started to set in. And if they gave me any more, it would it would have killed me. And um, it's kind of nice, this might sound weird, but I still have a little bit in my hands, my fingers, and my toes. And it's kind of okay, don't ask why, it's just okay that it's there, it's a nice reminder. Um, so I had had all these tests, the lung surgeon up here at Kingston, not the one in, not the people in the city, he looked at my test and said, I don't see any change. You've still got all the tumors that you had before. And he tells me, get your fares in order. Bye. Good luck. So when I got off the phone, I was shaking. My knees were shaking. I was trembling. He told me that, um, I think he's the one who told me that they saw, not only did they see stuff in my lungs, they saw stuff in my breast. I don't know, and other parts of my body. So indicating that it really, um, spread. So I was, I was shaking. I didn't know what else to do. So I did the only thing I could do. I called Dido. And he said come to Session. So now I'm going to read from here. Session had begun the night before. Natalie drove me to the monastery. We arrived shortly after, 10 after the 10 a.m. sitting had begun. Both of us stood outside the Zendo door. I was too frightened to go in and too scared to go home. We hugged. It was an embrace f- full of pain. <sighs> Impossible to know where hers ended and mine began. Gently, she disentangled herself and guided me toward the zendo door. I took a deep breath and, and went in. she saw me almost immediately in doksan. He was reassuring and supportive but he couldn't take away my pain. He didn't create it. Who had created it? Where was it coming from? That simple truth that the pain was mine, that I had created it, and only I could take it away, that simple truth was something I had yet to realize for myself. And so I used my mind to create hell. My mind created hell. As I sat there, frightening thoughts kept arising, uh, and instead of, letting, instead of letting them go, I chased after them. Don't we all do that, no matter what the thoughts are? The thoughts, in turn, gave rise to strong emotions of fear, hopelessness, and despair. I greeted these emotions with revulsion and struggled to get rid of them. I played and replayed my conversation with each doctor, frantically looking for some loophole, some way out. By the end of the day, I was in a state of absolute frenzy. I asked to see Dido again in Doksan. You might think that the most compassionate thing to do with someone in that state would be to... Hold them and calm them. But Dido knew better. He threw me back on myself and he said to me, Go home and crawl onto your bed and wait to die. Go home and crawl onto your bed and wait to die. And I said to him, No, I won't do that. And then, if you want to read more, you have to read. (laughs) <laughs> you have to read the article. Okay. So, so the point, okay, so the point I want to make is, where was my suffering coming from? From the cancer, the chemotherapy, the doctor's words? Was it inside me or outside me? Pain is unavoidable. Suffering, talking to myself, tormenting myself, that's optional. <sighs> So I did view the cancer, strange as it may seem, as a gift because I thought, well, I'm either going to die, well, or, or maybe I won't. Um, so the second thing I'm going to read to you is also from, um, from session um, one. I can't remember what preceded. I I guess what was happening was it was we were pretty sure the chemotherapy that I had been taking wasn't working because after uh, I they took that X-ray of me and saw the guy up here was wrong. It wasn't. He was seeing things. I don't know what he was seeing. There was only one little piece of cancer, and I went down to Sloan Kettering because they couldn't do it up here. He told me to go home and die. Sloan Kettering, and interestingly, the doctor who performed the surgery had been a marinal missionary nun for 10 years, which I thought was interesting. Anyway, they cut me open like a chicken, and and they found just one small piece of cancer. So then they said, okay, just keep taking the other chemo which is very mild. They said, you mean the chemo that doesn't work? They said, well, that's all we have. So at that point, I went to see a Chinese healer who Dido sent me to. But um, if you want to read about that, it's in the book. I mean, it could be a book, but it's not. It's in the article. I'm going to skip over that because I really want to get you with the important piece of this whole episode. Uh. Dido would probe me and gently, gently push me to understand why I had created it. And there was no blame. It's not like I was a bad person, but what was it doing? And that was a a profound journey that he took me on. Uh, So this part I'm going to read to you is yet another session that I, I, I went to. I recognized that I clearly needed to go deeper. Session was the perfect way to do that. At other times, it was possible for me to to distract myself, to keep my fears about the cancer under control, but in session, there was no place to hide. All the anxious, fear-filled thoughts would come up, and I would deal with them the way I usually did. I talked to myself about them. Then, halfway through this particular session, however, I saw for the very first time, the very first time, that there was another way to use my mind. This time, when a thought arose, bringing with it feelings of terror, I neither recoiled from it in horror, nor engaged in dialogue about it. I simply watched it, and it fell away. It fell away, and with it went my fear. I raced into Doksan when my turn came. Now I understand the lines of the Heart Sutra. No hindrance in the mind, therefore no fear. No suffering, no cause of suffering. I'm the cause of suffering. I create it by how I use my mind. I'm the hindrance. Daido nodded that it was so. That's how you live your whole life, isn't it? And he nodded again that it was so. That's how I want to live my whole life, I exclaimed. And he cautioned me. He said, it took years, years of practice. Don't be disappointed if you can't maintain it when you leave Session. I left Dok San elated. It didn't matter if I couldn't maintain it, because I had glimpsed the possibility. I had glimpsed the gateway to freedom. So, 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 um, so you have an optimi- optimist and a pessimist, right? You only knew how powerful your minds were, really. So there's a glass of wine in the room, and the pessimist walks into that room and looks at that glass of wine. He says, damn it! Damn it! Who got here before me? Who drank that glass of wine? And he's angry and frustrated and steams out. And then the optimist walks into that room and looks at that glass of wine half full and tears of gratitude flow down his cheeks because there's half a glass of wine left same circumstances same situation what's the difference how you use your mind what you tell yourself how we create the whole catastrophe. And liberation is that little glimmer of a glimpse, the tiniest sliver of recognition that it doesn't have to be this way. I I want to share one more thing from you from my practice. And by the way, if I could go back in time and undo All the wretched agony, I wouldn't. Because I wouldn't be the person I am today. I don't know if it's better or worse or not, but I just know it changed me in ways I can't even begin to describe. It it broke my heart open to all the suffering in the world. And even then, I thought I was done with seeing all the suffering, but turns out I'm not. Every time I turn around, there's more. There's more. But I don't ever want to stop seeing it. And I'm working on how to work with that and how to be of, of service. Um, this is one last thing I'd like to share with you. Um, so, so I hope I got the point across that, that that this is where the pain's coming. We create the pain, okay? But it takes a lot a lot of continual practice to stop. The constant chatter. We chatter to ourselves about everything. And basically, shut up. But easier to say than do. But don't give up. Don't give up. I'm 80 years old. I probably started meditating when I was there. You know, if you count the time I was in the convent, I was a nun. That started at 18. So I've been doing this for a very long time. And I'm nowhere near the end. I don't even think there is. isn't. There is no end, so that doesn't matter. All right, so don't give up. Uh, so... This happened not too long ago, and it's a practice I've taken up. I can't remember how old it is, but it's a practice that's been effective for me. Uh, I had a a very frightening, disturbing dream. It it was when the terrible earthquake happened in Turkey. And in this dream, I I was just there, and it was just unbearable and un... I mean, it was just a horrible dream. There was nothing I could do, nothing. And it was all this suffering. So I woke up in my bed, and I felt this feeling of anxiety coming up. And I thought, oh, is this my friend Death visiting me again or what? So... I went to the nightstand, and I opened um, the, uh, up, and I took a bottle out, and I had, oh, a little Valium there, and I took, and I said to myself, whoa, what are you doing? You're an idiot. Put it away. Close the door. This is an opportunity. Don't run from that terrible feeling that you, that's, you think is going to kill you. It won't kill you. I swear to you, it doesn't kill you. It doesn't kill you. I swear to you, it doesn't. It just takes time. Each time it comes up, whatever the fear is, mostly I work with anxiety, and it's gotten much less. But it's okay. When it comes, I know how to work with it. So it came up, and, and what I do is I just hold it, hold it, maybe rock it a little bit, like a mother or a father with a child. It's okay. You're all right. Nobody wants you. Everybody's afraid of you. You can stay with me for a little while. I'll hold you. I'll hold you. I'll hold you. Stay, stay, stay. I wasn't trying to make it go away. I was, you have to really not be trying to make it. It can't be a sneaky way to try and get it go away. It doesn't work. You have to truly, you have to truly, from the bottom of your heart, because some part of you trusts that basically that feeling and every other emotion we experience is empty. There's nothing solid about it. So what happened was the emotion started to fall away. And I found myself saying, no, 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 I'm not finished working. Come back a little bit. So sometimes, so I want to just say this about my experience working with emotions, is um, it's really helpful to realize, at least on an intellectual level, that they are empty. And so I don't have to run from them so, so much anymore. Sometimes... Um, an emotion will come up and before I have a chance to respond I forgot what I was it's gone, it's gone I remember one day looking for it and couldn't figure out where it went and told Shugan that something magical happened <laughs> I, I didn't realize that it was it was like really it's really the fruit of practice we all experience fruits of practice when we um, when we just stay so there's nothing the only thing you can't do is the thing you tell yourself you can't do there's no emotion you can't hold. No pain you can't endure. There's nothing that you can do unless you tell yourself you can't do it. So I just wanted to end with... Um, oh, okay. So so what I was talking about there is the middle way. I wasn't pushing the anxiety away. I was kind of trying to make it, get it stay a little bit, but, you know, I mean... But basically, it's, it's not suppressing them. They come and they go like this, like the gate's flapping in the wind, and they are empty. I wouldn't lie to you. I'm telling you from my own experience. They fall away. Trust yourself. So that's the middle way. That's the middle way. That's not suppressing the emotions or not clinging to them when they're pleasant. Hold them tenderly and let them just fade away. Thus shall you think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom and a dream. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.